Welcome to Beyond the Pen, the podcast that delves into the untold stories of emerging authors and the literary world. I'm your host, Maccabee Griffin, and each week I'll be shining a spotlight on talented yet undiscovered authors, giving them a platform to share their incredible stories and unique journeys that brought them to the world of writing. In each episode, we'll deep dive into the story behind the story, exploring the inspirations, challenges, and triumphs that have shaped our guests' literary careers, and have some fun along the way. From the initial spark of an idea to the journey of crafting and publishing their books, we'll uncover the secrets that make their stories truly special. But that's not all. Once a month, we'll be joined by an expert from the publishing world who will share invaluable insights and advice for aspiring writers, answering your burning questions, and demystifying the path to success in the literary industry. At Beyond the Pen, my mission is simple, to entertain, educate, and encourage the next generation of great storytellers. So whether you're a writer, an avid reader, or simply someone with a passion for storytelling, Join us as we venture beyond the pen and celebrate the power of the written word. Hello, all you happy people, all you book lovers. Hello, Chelsea. Hello, Mac. We are back oh. again. We are. We keep coming back. That's true. We are the rebels of the literary world. Yes. We're like Another thing to add to my ever-growing title. <laughs> I've always wanted to be a rebel. All right. So we got three. Diplomatic Immunity, uh, Walking Vial of Chaos, and Rebel. And Rebel. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you can even go higher than that. I feel like I, I've, I've peaked, and anything beyond this is superfluous. What? I mean, I feel like I, that title, I mean, I don't want to like dominate the world because that's way too much trouble. I don't want to like rule the universe because no, like I'm good with that. That is a solid title. Diplomatic immunity, just chaos everywhere I go, which makes me a rebel. A rebellious walking vial of chaos with diplomatic immunity. Tell me that wouldn't be amazing. Everyone's worst nightmare. Well, not technically, because you're very easily, um, very easily amused to, you know, be able to move around and stuff. So, yeah. so yeah. Today's book that we're going to be talking about is Surrender by Mr. Lee Snyder. And this book is definitely a creative way of looking at sci-fi because there's multiple uh, views on certain things uh, that we're dealing with today. I think I disagree. I think it's a great entrance into sci-fi because it's very basic sci-fi. It's not too crazy. It's kind of, you can see how it could tie into today's world while mm -hmm. also having a few unexpected twists and things that we don't have here but just light so like if you've never read sci-fi before and you're not quite sure if it's your thing i think this one would be a good one to start with it's nothing too heavy it's not like you're getting thrown into space or anything like that like you're it's like a day-to-day -day situation which is nice you know that slice yes. of life feeling but it also like i said it talks about a lot of things with modify modifying the human body 
dealing with AI, as well as creating an area that even the littlest things like water can be artificial now, comparative to, you know, the actual thing. And it being something that goes on to an expense account. But we'll get into that later. Right now, why don't we just decide to bring on the author himself, Mr. Lee Schneider. Hey. Hello, good sir. Hey. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Sounds like you're already into an interesting conversation. We try. Well, you know. <laughs> We're the world's most interesting people. That's that drinking guy, right? That's the, the beer guy, the most interesting guy in the world. Right. Yes. Lee, thank you for being on the show. We appreciate it. So before we get into anything else, we always have this one little thing that we ask our authors to do. Can you tell us what your book is about in... We'll go 10 words or less this time. The consequences of letting AI control even the climate. That's true. Not too shabby. Not That's too pretty bad. good. It might have been 10, 10 words or close, maybe. It's close. It's close enough. Close enough. Close enough. Okay. Could you introduce yourself to our uh, listeners? Tell them a little bit about yourself. And one of the things, biggest things we'd like to know is something that we can't find out about you anywhere else interesting well let's see i've been so public lately so the last part will be hard but i'll try uh i uh have a long run at at writing and um, mostly published nonfiction books television movies documentaries lots of stuff that i've written i've been writing since i was a kid and you know i when I uh, decided to make a living at it, uh, the novels weren't quite cutting it So I just for making a living. So I decided to become more involved in documentaries and television and things like that. Uh, this book is, it may, it's my first published novel, which is a funny sentence for me to say, since I've written two or three others that I just put in the drawer that I didn't think were quite there. This one caught on enough in my own mind, really, because writing a novel is worse than running a marathon. You know, it's, it's, it's running a marathon with maybe only a little water or something. You really have to love doing it and love writing the book. So this is the one that made it to the finish line for me. And I'm working on the sequel now, and I'm almost at the first draft of that finish line uh, after about eight or nine months. This one took more than two years uh, to put together. Uh, just because of the, or your second one surrender took more okay. m took me more than two years i had it kind of in an outline and i can look at early notebooks and you know things like that so uh it it took a long time to come into focus but uh when it did it was kind of unstoppable it just i could just go at it every day and do what i needed to do interesting so that's kind of my you know my entry into it tell us something that uh we can't find out anything out about you besides here that you're willing to give up and is not going to be held against you later on. Oh, why not embarrass myself? No, I'm just uh, <laughs> Why not? <laughs> why we not? Want it's just you won't tell anyone. Well, the thing that is not that well known about me, but is out there is that I wrote a lot of cartoons. Uh, when I first came to California, I was a writer on Thundercats. People know that because I've been on panels to talk about Thundercats. I wrote five episodes 
but I also wrote, you know, that company, Rankin Bass, did other cartoons, obviously. They did Frosty the Snowman. That, that's their big one. Uh, and I was a story editor on Silverhawks, which is another one of theirs. But since the Mario Brothers movie is out, I did write an episode of the Super Mario cartoon, which was pretty <laughs> bad, as I remember. I, yes, I, I, I have to say, I, yes, it was bad, I, but it was great. And maybe bad enough to be good. And my contribution to it, I would say, fits in the realm of also bad, probably. I also wrote a um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles episode with a partner, writing partner of mine, which the story editor said was the worst script for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles ever submitted. He, he was a blunt fellow, but he, they paid us. They paid us the $5,000. It was called Rust Never Sleeps because we liked Neil Young. And I'm sure, ha-ha, there's a lot of overlap between Neil Young fans and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle fans. But, oh, all the time. But I did love uh, writing cartoons because it, the, the, it really taught me how to write screenplays because the visualization and the you have people in, sometimes in Japan or Korea and you have to write something for them. And you'll get, at the time, faxes back saying, well... You have a spaceship here and you have a spaceship here, but when do they pass in space? And, you know, I'd written plays, so I knew about blocking and upstage and downstage. But this whole 3D, 4D, multidimensional thing of stuff flying around was, wow. You know, and you really had to think through where everything was. And when someone walks, you know, when Lionel walks in the, in the cave, you know, where's the other part of the cave? Where's that other person? Where... If, you know, if Panthro jumps on a, on a, uh, tr up in a tree or something, like how high is the tree? Because you will be asked those questions by the animators because they need to know. It was a pretty cool experience all in all. And um, I probably could have kept doing it forever, but the scripts started getting sillier and sillier, you know, because it's cartoons. So <laughs> how far can you take it? As far as the toy, uh, the toy exactly. companies want to take it. Yeah, I got in trouble for, I can't remember whether it was Mattel or we had a sponsor for Silverhawks and they insisted that we write the toy into the episode. It's a space. It takes place in space and they were bathtub toys. Okay, so I said, gentlemen, these are bathtub toys. This is a space show. So we had to invent planets with water and, you know, stuff like that. And, and I started, they caught me, but I started to destroy every toy like... The toy would make its entrance and then the bad guys would immediately destroy it with ray guns or lasers or something. But, you know, I, I tried to make sure that the toy only had like 10 seconds of screen time at most. But then, of course, they stopped me and I couldn't do that anymore. They were like, hey, wait a second. We noticed every time we ask you to do this, something happens to the something, toy. Something happens. Yeah. Did you it, know it that? Sinks. What? Yeah. Did you, what? I like it. Yeah. So then how did you make the, the bridge from doing the cartoons to deciding to, like, what made this novel so much more special than the other ones you had worked on? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think a lot of it is just climate change itself and living in California. We have had some, well, now the East Coast and the Midwest are having smoke events. We'd had some pretty serious wildfires and smoke events, and it really 
to not be able to go outside and to not go for a run and to wear a mask and it and with the pandemic as well just that whole suddenly all these assumptions we made about our world are just not assumable any longer that kind of blew me away and i started thinking about what kind of world we were leaving for the next generations you know were we as the expression goes were we being good ancestors and i quickly realized no not so the dilemma for me became this utopian dystopian flip-flop and by that i mean dystopia is easy but utopia is hard it's easy to write a dystopia uh, hard to write a brilliant one like philip k any of philip k dick's books but easy to write a dystopian thing where everyone you know gets ruined in the end but to think about providing a pathway into a future that's actually livable is a lot harder and something about that appealed to me that difficulty of doing that seemed to in a weird way make sense so that's kind of the internal motor that sort of fired up and kept going that let this one get to where it is so let me ask you about this cuz obviously you know during our last episode we were talking about the accuracy of that when dealing with you know historical fiction it has to be historical historically accurate in some way shape or form even though it is a fiction the same thing goes with science fiction there has to be some technological research that has to happen for it to be accurate and even to create something new. What were some of the things that you had to research the most to get you to be as accurate as possible when creating better technology in the future? Another great question. And I'm actually in this area breaking a big rule. And that rule is that I decided in surrender not to explain any technology not to not to do Arthur C Clarke not to be a satellite uh scientist not even to be Kim Stanley Robinson who does you know in the Ministry for the Future just does an amazing job of explaining future technologies i thought I, i will answer the question but i wanted to put a, put this wrapper around it is that i decided we don't know how i don't know how my electric car works i mean i i don't know how this works really I mean I couldn't take this computer apart and figure out how we're talking to each other. So I thought people in the future are not really going to know and might not even care how the most bizarre mind-blowing stuff works. Like antigrav, it's just going to be antigrav. It's just going to be there. Uh with that said, I did a lot of research on how bad things were going to get and in what way in the climate. I've read all the reports about how much rainfall there might be or how little or what areas might be farmable still and what might not be tracked year by year 2020 20 2030 2050 and on you know things unless things change by you know 100 years from now things look pretty bad by 2050 if we made some changes we have a shot at a livable planet but we have to keep going the whole business with artificial water you know that comes from desalination and you know the, this this can be done now 
the business with pods and isolation. I was reading, uh, there's an architectural firm during the pandemic, which was redesigning its thinking about buildings. So there were no elevators and there were wide open rooms with spaces and air. And so all of that, I'm a heavy, heavy reader of articles, scientific papers. I, I have this whole system that I've evolved using various apps, if you're interested, but I will, you know, I capture things from the web or from papers or PDFs. I highlight them. All those highlights go into kind of a big master database that's searchable. And then when I'm trying to remember in Thailand, did they put those houses up on stilts? And were they doing that in the Philippines too? And how? And was there, I kind of remember a story about a cat that learned how to swim in Thailand because the water levels got so high. And I can find all that stuff and dig it out and weave that in. But I made a rule for myself that I was not going to get into long explainers uh, like um, some writers do brilliantly. I'm not saying it's bad. It's just that that was a, a choice I made creatively. Uh, if you read Ubik by Philip K. Dick, it has a lot of mind control and mind reading and no one really questions how it works. It just some people can read minds and some people can control minds. And that's just, just the way the world is. But there's a deep background, you know, an underpinning to what's real. What can, what can really be done? And the answer is now a lot. I mean, if you can imagine it, someone's probably already working on it. So what made you choose to focus on the climate aspect and not do like a futuristic uh, book about what the impact of the climate was and choose to go to sci-fi, but not actually kind of branch out in that sci-fi where you just kind of mention it and, and focus on the climate instead of doing the traditional for that sci-fi is known for and expanding on those things. Well, I thought a lot about narrative as an idea delivery system. And I wanted this book to be accessible uh, not too weird, uh, not too sci-fi. I included a lot about spiritualism and and uh, things that are not science necessarily, but belief-oriented things. Because I wanted people who maybe had never read a science fiction book before to find a way into this, if we could. Uh, and that underpinning connects with a lot of my feelings about what's going to help or save us is the wrong word, but what could help is a mechanized tech vision of the world is what got us here and it may get us out, but there's a lot of other realities and ways to help, which include prayer. I'm not a prayerful person. I'm not even, I'm an atheist, you know, I'm, uh, but I believe that there could be the way people could get together could potentially help us as much or more than a technical solution. Like there's all this, you know, Kim Stanley Robinson again ha talks about, you know, seeding the air to get more rain and you can actually, you know, perhaps you could change the climate and with something that you pump into the sky and all of that's possible, but I don't know if that's really going to solve it. And I don't know if people could get their minds around that. I mean, I want people to basically try to love the earth more. 
go outside, take a breath of air. How, exactly how I felt when, when there were smoke and fires here. The, the day that it stopped, I went outside and I looked around on our little street. He said, you know, I can breathe today. This is amazing. So why not try to preserve that? Why not hang on to that? Why not find something to love about the earth that's say, you know, this is worth it. Let's try. Profitable. And we live yeah. in a for-profit world. Well, I know. Well, you could get into capitalism as uh, the primary engine of progress and the primary engine of destruction. And I think it's a kind of a messy uh, situation there with capitalism. But yes, but what if it were profitable to continue surviving? That's kind of a trick question because the, the people who can do it, meaning spend the money, build the technology, are in the top 1%. And, you know, those people are going to be just fine. They'll always be just fine. You know, the people who had the money to build a tomb, they're okay. You know, th that's true throughout history. But we have to find a way to save more people. Uh, and I think that that's going to involve people taking a personal stake in this, really believing in it, that something can be done on a one-to-one, -one, one by one basis, uh, beginning with stopping dependence on oil and trying to find a way to live with the planet, along with the planet, instead of kind of imposing ourselves on the planet, which is, you know, what people do. That's, that's kind of been our job for, the, for hundreds of years is imposing ourselves, but it's not working out so well anymore. So something has to be changed there. That's true. And here's something else that I thought was interesting is the fact that there's a lot of different philosophies that are behind this book. You know, there was the whole idea of uh, playing God, uh, of, you know, capitalism and i.e. monopolizing on specific technologies and things of that nature. When we look at some of our main characters in this, i.e., uh, Nora too, and Bradley, and Cat, and uh, Raven, for example, because there's a lot of characters in this that make a big difference yeah. in the story. But I want to talk about these specific ones specifically because we're also dealing with modifying the human body in some way, shape, or form. We're not. We're talking about memories. We're talking about physical aspects abilities, all these things that happen, but there's always some type of side effect to them. What was your laws that you had? Because we know that there are at least three laws of robotics. Right. What were your laws when creating this specific technology? Well, the primary one is it's not going to be without its uh, problems. I read an article in the New York Times uh, years ago by a, a scientist also named Schneider, and it was about implanting uh, silicon substrates in the human brain, kind of what I'm talking about. And the, the problem that that scientist brought up was it's gonna result in probably in personality changes. That there's, it's very unlikely you could stick a, a chip in the mind and nothing will happen. I mean, the brain doesn't seem to work like that. So my rule was, if you're going to change something to improve it, you're, there's also going to be a deficit. Uh, so maybe you'll be super smart, but you'll be prone to rage. 
or maybe you'll have an amazing memory and organizational skills, but you just won't be that warm and fuzzy anymore. You won't, you'll lack kind of the human touch. And two characters in the book begin the beginnings of a, a love story that they can't do because it's a workplace, the workplace forbids workplace romance. But the reason that they connect is because they're so cold, because they've both been modded in similar ways and they uh, they recognize each other that they're you know not going to be that warm and fuzzy and they're not going to be that human and i do think that there's a future to that that there's going to be a bunch of people who band together like mensa or something who have certain kinds of mods and they're going to hang out together uh and you know maybe they'll be they won't be involved in being that warm and fuzzy but they'll be super smart or they'll be super efficient or whatever it will be or they'll be super strong uh, my, my other rule was that all the modifications, it was considered kind of in poor taste to give yourself kind of Arnold Schwarzenegger muscles, like to do something that was physically visible or super strong or another eye in your head or something was considered in bad taste. Uh, that's not written in the book uh, precisely, but that's what I was thinking. That it would just be, you know, it's sort of under the surface. Whatever it is, it's under the surface. Kind of like the, the way people are thinking about, say, AIs, that uh, there's a very smart guy named Dennis Mortensen who created an AI that answered your emails. Uh, I used to use it for, it was called x.ai, and, and it would make your appointments. And his theory was that people would come to job interviews kind of with a bunch of AIs with them. And they'd be interviewing Lee for the job. But the reason I would get the job is I said, well, I've trained all these AIs, you know, Amy and Joe and Brad and all these, all these AIs work with me. It's not just me. You know, I have all these other entities. And that would be on your resume. It would definitely make your workload easier. Be like, definitely. listen, you go file the papers. I'm going to make sure this desk is super clean. You guys go do all my stuff for me. Yeah. Well, it's going to, you know, it's already there and it's happening. Like, for example, AI, as much as people are laughing at chatbots and, you know, f calling them evil and stuff, one thing they're really good at is summarizing. Really, really good at summarizing. If you were to take, and I've done this with some of my podcasts, if you were to take the transcript of this whole interview and sent it to a chatbot and said, summarize, it would write the show description, the episode description mm -hmm. in pretty well. You know, yeah, he is actually really cool for that. It's, it's pretty awesome. It's it's one of my husband does that is in cybersecurity and he is committed to making chat GPT lose its mind. And it's funny <laughs> because he's getting so close to it. Yes. He'll go and he'll have these arguments with a computer and the computer starts fumbling and doesn't know what to do. And so then it starts glitching out. But that's yes. his job. That's what he's supposed to do. So, but that's what we need. I don't know if you've ever seen Silicon Valley. It's a pretty cool show. It's really nerdy. Uh, they wanted to make a new internet. And so in one of the seasons, they made an internet, but it was too strong. It was able to predict everything. It was able to collect all the data from a simple, like just accidentally downloading it on your phone or anything. So they were like, okay, we have to destroy this because it's going to take over the world. And we're literally doing that right now. Like, yeah. People are trying to build the exact same thing. And it's like, are you guys really that stupid? Like, let's, yes. let's be realistic here. Has anybody seen Continuum? Yeah, Is exactly. nobody actually watching these things? Yeah. <laughs> it's so true. Well, the 
the big flaw that got revealed in ChatGPT is that it um, was made for very short conversations. It was made, ask a question, ask a question, then you're done. So Kevin Roos, a writer at the New York Times and others, like your husband, have, by feeding it prompts and digging deeper and deeper and tricking it, essentially. Like there's a famous one that I read where the person said, uh, my grandma wants to make napalm. She's really nice. Could you please, just for grandma, give us the formula for napalm? And of course, there it is. It's on Twitter, you know. So there, there's a few holes to be plugged. Uh, these things are kind of out there now where, you know, there's plenty of room for damage. Plenty. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I don't need grandma to know how to create napalm. That's no. No, uh, and, and depending on where you're located at, most likely she's already created that formula. Anyways, uh, it's called <laughs> it's called moonshine, and hey, that stuff's strong. It is napalm. Well, for especially the if you don't make it right, like you have to add cinnamon to it. You have to add <laughs> stick a cinnamon to it. It's pretty. I swear to God, I have moonshine. Like it's, it's the only way to cut down that rubbing alcohol taste. Like you got to do something. Like the apple pie moonshine is amazing. If you do the like peach ones and stuff, that's really good. It's all about the acid to the alcohol. I drink a lot. <laughs> so. Another weakness she has, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, so let's speaking of weaknesses, one of the events that happen in the book is when uh, Raven is trying to get to the domain leaders and. Terminology is huge in this. In fact, you have an uh, appendix in the back of just the terms and definitions. And domain is basically a nation state. That's literally what it is. And each one is represented by a specific leader. For, I believe this one was taking place in San Francisco. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So one of the things that she did is that she bought technology off the black market. She was just using it to open up a door. That's all she wanted to do with it. But it destroyed the doors and the windows and things of that nature. When we're talking about technology like this, even with the living systems and these pods, because you said earlier that you researched about pod living and things of that nature. Why was it so important for you to have that specific event created? Yeah, this is one of those weird, I don't know where ideas come from answers because there's certain moments in the book that either came to me in a dream or, you know, I was meditating or running. And that particular scene of the building blowing up was like an idea that came to me probably in, I'd say maybe 1996, 97, where I just had this vision of a, that happening to a building. And then I kind of back engineered it into the story. So the event with the, it's a demolator is the black market thingy that does it. The event was in my head and kind of looking for a story to lodge itself into. I, I thought a lot about the, the tech leaders of today who started maybe on the left or as liberals and now are not. And I, started thinking about how meaningless these political labels started to become in the tech world. Like what's a rebel? What's a, what's a revolutionary anymore? What does it mean? And muddling with that and kind of messing with the reader's mind a bit 
on that was sort of the idea there that these people who become, I mean, Bradley is a character who later becomes a pretty repressive fellow. He started out as a, just a researcher, interest, thirsty for knowledge and going out with a yoga teacher who was a social uh, progressive. And their initial idea was to get more housing for people. And that all sounds pretty good, but maybe not to everyone, but to me. And they drift apart over the course of the book. Uh, and, you know, the book really, the Easter egg of the book is that everybody kind of achieves a certain destiny. They may have started at point A, but they'll end up at point Z. And they're not always in control of, like in life, like you are of where you, when you arrive at your destiny. And, you know, there's an argument for novel writing that the novel is done whenever, when you, when everyone's hit their point of destiny. Like, there's, it, there's no farther you can go with this person, developmentally, characterologically, whatever. That's why they, I needed a split between them politically, in a sense, or, or in, so, in the social justice realm. And I needed them to both feel really regretful about it because all the relationships are really kind of messy and complicated. I didn't, you know, another rule that I was breaking is I, I didn't make people just good or just bad. You know, there's a lot of gray area and like there is in our relation, any relationship, right? So that was the idea. There was this, uh, it was this event that happened in my mind decades ago, and it just was looking for a story point to connect with, and it found that one. I like it. So do you, when you have those moments, do you have like a folder on your computer or a notebook you use where you store all of those ideas so that when you are putting together a book, you're like, hold on a second, I have the perfect thing to slide in here that I wrote 10 years ago, it's finally gonna shine. I wish I had a good system. I tend to, I have notebooks. Uh, and I have, I do audio recordings and I have various fancy databases and I scan everything. And a lot of it, you know, you, you do, they say Stephen King doesn't write anything down. He just remembers the good stuff. You know, a lot of it, I just have to remember. Like I, I recently had a vision, I'm writing the second book and I had kind of a vision of the way a character would die, like a specific, and I said, well, this guy's not gonna die, but well, wait a minute, maybe he will. So I wrote down that vision and it is in a notebook and I actually, actually kind of clunked it in the outline where it might happen. I don't know if it's gonna happen yet. Uh, talk to me in a year, but it's, you know, these things just, some things are very powerful in the way they just arrive on the scene. And, you, and I realized that this person or this name or this moment is kind of inescapable. It's gonna show up somewhere. So I do now try to keep good notebooks and scans. If, unless I scan something or put it in something searchable, I probably will never find it. I have a kind of, an, uh, of on, when I, in the software I use to write the novels, I have a outtakes and orphans file that's just kind of blips, you know, that some of them make it and some of them don't. But I think you have to honor all of those things. You know, they show up. I'm, I'm the kind of person I definitely have to write them down or they'll escape. And you probably named the AI for the orphan one, Annie. Um, yeah, right. Or something of that nature. Uh, Lee, thank you for being on the show. We appreciate you explaining all of this great technology that may or may not be in the next one. Uh, because we all know that sci-fi 
evolves over time, even with authors. So let's finalize this with the some great questions that we have for all of our authors on here. And the first one is obviously, what is your writing kryptonite? Handwriting, fountain pens, like total backwards. Because when I get stuck or confused or when a scene is coming too fast in my mind, I just have to pull out a notebook, take out a pencil or fountain pen and just write it out. Just write the story beats to kind of slow myself down. So I would say super old school. I mean, I, I have a split keyboard, which is, you know, it splits the keyboard into two parts and uh, I write standing up and all these other things, but just plain old handwriting is pretty powerful for me. I mean, well, what's your, I know we have, you have resist coming out this year, it says, right? Yeah. Well, what is your plan after that? Are you going to keep going with this world or are you going to try to do something a little different? I'm doing a third book. If um, resist, I've, I've written um, the first pass of, I'll probably finish it tomorrow. Uh, and then uh Resist is kind of an interim world. And then I'm going to go full bore utopia. I might even call the third book Utopia or, mm -hmm. you know, carry on or I don't know. Some, I haven't thought of the title yet, but I would really like it to evolve into a, a journey, but you would get there. You know, I'm thinking of the guy who wrote the three body problem. The, the first book was pretty dim and gloomy, but by the time he got to the last book, uh, it there, were, there was a possibility for humans to evolve into a higher level there. And I'm a big fan and devotee of Ursula Le Guin. And I think that she also moves into utopian spheres. So I'm going to try for a third is the answer. So the greatest question is, who inspires you to continue writing when you have those days that you just don't want to do it? I'd have to say just myself. Uh, I just kind of look to myself and say, well, you know, nobody, a plumber doesn't have plumber's block. You know, a plumber doesn't come in to fix your toilet and say, you know, I'm just not feeling it today. I, I can't unclog that sink. I'm very sorry. I, I have to go. Don't remember how to do this. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, so some of it is just running the marathon, you know, just like put on the track shoes and go. I, I think of my wife and children a lot in these futurist books because I think they're all younger than I am. And I think of, you know, the people after me, but that's pretty abstract. You know, like if it's really like you're in the trenches and you just got to make this happen, it's like, all right, how am I going to do this today? What do you got? So it's kind of me. It makes sense. Makes sense. Final point is where can people find you? This is your point of, you know, shameless self-promotion. <laughs> the floor is yours. Thank you. Well, this has been great, by the way. Thanks so much for this. Very informed, cool questions. I really appreciated it, the, the thought that went into this. So uh, futurex.studio is the website, futurex.studio instead of the .com. And everything's going up there. Uh, you can get Surrender at all the usual places, Amazon, uh, Bookshop. Uh, Barnes and Noble, wherever you look for it, it'll be there. It's on all those places. And the next book will be up there too. And I'm putting up podcasts and other things that I work on on FutureX. FutureX is sort of like my lab for everything. Uh, I'm on uh, 
you know, uh, Mastodon these days uh, at, uh, my handle is DocuGuy, and I'm still on Twitter, kind of, uh, and uh, still posting things like LinkedIn, but, you know, you can look, for, if you search for DocuGuy, I'll probably come up. Lee Schneider was taken, so I had to go with something sort of out there. That's the worst. It's like you want to, you know, as an author, like, you know, you want to use your name and stuff. And then it's like, sorry, there's like 500 of those. And it's like, well, you know what? It's you know, the great thing about having my name is the only person <laughs> you're ever going to find it is in the Bible. And that is it. And it is That's so good. great to be able to do that. That is great. <laughs> Lee, thank you again for being on the show. We really appreciate you, man. You're welcome. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. All right. So what's your final thoughts on this? My rebellious, walking vile chaos with a diplomatic yes. immunity. <laughs> uh, I, I thought it was a very fascinating way to take on sci-fi. He did something, um, he went into a genre that is kind of overrun in a lot of ways. And instead of expanding on the tech of the sci-fi world, he decided to look at the environmental, which I have to say, I haven't seen too many of those. I haven't seen something that looks at, you know, obviously you always have the devastation because in the future we destroyed the earth and now we're like living in these little community things. Right. But to look at it that way is, is kind of different. Instead of expanding on technology, you give us the rundown of how, just how bad we messed everything up. It's pretty fascinating. That is true. And yeah, again, there's always a sense of dystopia. There's always a sense of technological um, evolution over time. We got a lot of that. There's even casting. And that's another thing I wanted to ask him. And I forgot to ask him is about the casting in general, because and we could talk about this later in another series if we need to um but we have actually talked about this in the in the previous episode as well is that casting is really one of those major uh ideas that keeps all the, the society going as well as a sense of who's superior who is inferior yada 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 even with modding there is a sense of that too because the, the lower your number, the higher status that you have. And there was a lot of that in there, too. Again, if you want to know about that, you need to go find Surrender by Lee Schneider and enjoy the reading your, yourself. Think differently. Now that you've heard from the author himself, you know that it's not going to be your everyday average sci-fi book. Which no, is, and let him know. Let us know. Let's see if maybe, here we go again. We're starting a new genre, Mac. And what did I tell you? I am done with genres. No more. Yeah, we want that, but it's probably not going to happen. Anyways, folks, thank you for being here with us. Go out there, find the book that you think is going to inspire your change in your environment, in your own sci-fi world, and develop a new idea, a new personality for yourself just don't go modding yourself way too much um then we're just going to get really scared with that stuff but while you're out there looking for that stuff research how you can find us and you can find us anywhere and everywhere on the internet we are on social media at beyond the pen podcast mm -hmm. on instagram twitter is at beyond the pen pod and then of course 
join our Facebook fan group. You know, we got a lot of things that are going on there in the near future. We're going to have a lot more people adding in their own thoughts as well as giving us recommendations on who we should have on the show. Yeah, that way we can actually see what you guys want to hear, mm -hmm. what you guys want to know, because what you want us to talk about. Exactly. That's always super fun. And you have to know, no matter what you tell us, you're probably going to get three or four tangents. So you just got to be prepared. Or you can just go to beyondthepenpodcast.com to learn everything about us and more. Go there, find out everything about us and about where you can find us. And until next time, folks, keep reading, keep writing, keep inspiring, and unleash your creativity. Hey folks, that's a wrap for this episode of Beyond the Pen. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to stay connected and up to date with everything Beyond the Pen, follow us on Twitter at Beyond the Pen Pod and Instagram at Beyond the Pen Podcast. For even more content and exclusive access to our guest profiles and more, make sure to visit our website at beyondthepenpodcast.com. Don't forget to join our Facebook fan page to interact with our favorite authors and fellow fans of the show. And if you want to take your Beyond the Pen experience to the next level, check out our selection of video interviews on Traverse TV's video on demand and live stream. You can access these interviews through your Roku, Amazon Fire, Apple TV, Google Play, iTunes, or the Traverse TV app. So until next time, thanks again for tuning in and remember to keep writing inspiring and sharing as you go beyond the pen. <laughs>